0: We are exactly halfway through our season of Lent and our series on the peaceable kingdom, our exploration of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s six principles of nonviolence and several parables of the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Matthew. Our intention for this season is to consider how God may be calling us to release some of our own comfort, safety, and power for the sake of the common good. The world needs to be different and we can make it different. But in order to do that, we need to be different first. We cannot give what we don't have. Our ability to act differently is what really matters in the long run, but it does start with thinking differently. Lent is a great season for deep thinking. So that's what we've been doing together. The first of Dr. King's principles of nonviolence is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active, nonviolent resistance to evil. Pacifism, not passive-ism. It is not that we do nothing. It is that we do something different. That first week, we explored Jesus' parable of the absurdly generous boss, who pays all the workers the same daily wage, regardless of how long they worked. To act nonviolently, we have to start thinking differently about the world. The second principle is that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation, restored relationships. For two weeks, we explored the parable of the servant who was released from an unpayable debt that he owed to his employer, but refused to release a fellow servant from a modest debt. This is part of Jesus' teaching on how to sustain community, how to sustain relationships in community. Forgiveness opens the door for friendship and understanding with our enemy. The third principle, which we explored last week, is nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims. Once we realize that we are all shaped by the system we live in, we can shift our animosity from our enemies themselves to the wider system of injustice that has shaped us both. The New Testament book of Ephesians says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Things need to change so that everyone can be free. This week's principle is that nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence willingly accepts the consequences to its acts. Although nonviolence is not passive, it does sometimes require the willingness to experience violence rather than inflict it on someone else. Even our most creative attempts may not result in our own total safety all the time. The system of this world operates by violence and physical force, and when we choose to actively resist the system, we will likely suffer the consequences in the only way the system knows how to dole out the consequences through violence. At this point, it is really important for me to acknowledge my own privilege and for you to acknowledge yours. I personally am committed to nonviolent resistance. I have never been the victim of violence. I've never been personally assaulted. I have never been punched because I stood up for someone else. I've never even been to a protest that got violent, either on the side of the protesters or on the side of law enforcement. I am incredibly privileged that my commitment to nonviolence is so far very conceptual. Now, that commitment to the concept is still important. I'm growing in my ability to think nonviolently, to think about my enemies as also victims, to recognize that God's end goal for everything is redemption and reconciliation, and so try to put that into practice in my life. I have thought a lot about the need for me and people like me to release some of our own comfort, safety, and power. And thinking like that, orienting myself that way in the world, is essential for how I live and how we raise Sammy and how I teach and how I preach. But I have not yet taken that experience into my own body. Does that make sense? We're in different places on this, I know. Some people have. Since these principles come from Dr. King, he's the obvious example. And he has this to say about his imprisonments, plural, the bombings, plural, of his home, the death threats against his children, his small children, and his near fatal stabbing. He says in his book, Strength to Love, my personal trials have also taught me the virtue of unmerited suffering. I didn't deserve it. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness, which is usually our response to suffering, or seek to transform that suffering into creative force. End quote. Bitterness or creativity, those are our options. The willingness for innocent people to resist violence with their bodies to let their own bodies be the place where injustice is revealed, that willingness is an act of holy sacrifice. You got to be hearing Jesus already, right? Okay. Violence demonstrates the real values of the world system. It's designed to crush human flourishing, which is ultimately the weakness that will also destroy it. Think about what was revealed about the system of injustice when black Americans and also some white Americans. In 1963 in Birmingham, it was children who chose to be there. Think about what was revealed when they allowed themselves to be attacked by dogs. Or knocked down by fire hoses that put out hundred pounds of pressure enough to tear their clothes and cause wounds on their skin. They were not doing anything to warrant this. They were not threatening anyone. In that moment, they suffered. And through their suffering, the horrible injustice of systemic racism was revealed. I think anyone with a conscience looks at that image and says, that is not right. That is wrong. Those images helped to change the tide of public opinion in this country. Those sacrifices shaped history. Nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence willingly accepts the consequences to its acts. Nonviolent resistance reveals the evil inherent in the system, in the very way that we do things, in the structures that are set up. When we allow ourselves to be the place where the evil is carried out, we will suffer. But what we know about God is that God does not ignore suffering, God honors. Suffering. God transforms suffering. God redeems suffering. Suffering is not good in and of itself. I am not advocating masochism. But suffering can be the manure, the fertilizer, if you will, in which amazing things can grow if we let them. We can become more than just our suffering. Let's think for a moment, I mentioned, and what you see in this picture is primarily black Americans. Clearly, they had something deeply personally at stake for them that might move them to put themselves in this situation. But there were white Americans that put themselves in this very same situation for the same reasons. So this is not just for people who have a personal stake in whatever is wrong. We are also called for the common good to step in because, again, Dr. King, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. We all have a stake in this. And to step in when it's not our issue, that's right where we're called to be, friends. Let's look at another parable of God's kingdom from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. If you're using the Bibles in the pews, it's page 1518. This is one of my favorites. In fact, this this parable is the text for um, the first sermon that I ever preached in this church, way back in the summer of 2017 when I was just here as a guest preacher. This parable is Matthew chapter 13, page 1518, if you're using the pew Bibles. The parable itself is not very long. And full disclosure, later on in the chapter, the disciples beg Jesus to tell them what the heck this means. And the interpretation that he gives them is one that is harder to unpack, so we're not going to include it this morning. We will tackle that another time. But the point that we need to make can be made just from the story itself. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus put to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? where then did the weeds come from? He answered, an enemy did this. The slaves said to him, then do you want us to go and gather those weeds? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. These are the words of God for all people. Thanks be to God. What I invite you to notice this morning is that the farmer's choice not to uproot the weeds did have a price. I have a little garden. I don't know a lot about big farming. But I do know that weeds take up nutrients that are needed by the crop. They grow annoyingly fast. They can choke out the plants that you are trying to grow. It is very likely that the farmer will get less of what he wants because of this choice. But he accepts the consequences of his actions, not out of care for the weeds, but out of care for the wheat. The results of violence tend to bleed out in ways that we don't anticipate. The choice to violently uproot the weeds would have also damaged the wheat. And so the farmer chose the nonviolent option, allowing the weeds to grow and accepting the consequences of what that might mean for the eventual yield of the crop. Now, this raises all kinds of other fascinating questions like, is this parable trying to say we should just let injustice grow? Do we just let everything happen the way it's going to happen and wait for God to sort it out? I hope that you will talk about those questions in the car when you leave and at the lunch table. Because parables are designed to provoke you, to poke at you, to agitate you, to make you think. Violence is not the only option, so often we feel like it is. And violence also has consequences. When we choose violence, I believe that we do damage to our own souls, to our own humanity. And if we choose violence, we have to accept those consequences. They are not insignificant. When we choose to inflict violence on someone else, whether that's physical violence or friends, whether that's verbal violence, Even as a measure of self-defense or defense of someone else, we damage ourselves and we don't really know where that cycle of violence is going to end and what else will be destroyed in the process once we get it started. But nonviolence also has consequences. We will likely suffer. And let's bring it back to my level, the only way I've experienced it so far. When I choose the nonviolent option of seeing my enemies as victims, that has some consequences for me. Sometimes people get upset with me that I don't tend to jump on all the angry bandwagons. Nobody thanks you for bringing up the other perspective. I do get accused of being not as committed to the cause, whatever that is in the moment. That's not physical suffering, but it is some consequences, some social consequences for me, albeit small ones. But friends, accepting those consequences is our training for someday maybe accepting the larger consequences from more significant acts of nonviolence. If we are going to change the system that is designed to keep some people on the top and keep some people on the bottom, the whole system is designed that way. Somebody has to be with the way things are designed right now. If we're gonna change the cycle of retribution, if we're gonna change our habits of violence both interpersonally and geopolitically, we are all going to have to voluntarily give up some of our own comfort and power and yes, even our safety. And some of us have more of those things to give up than others do. I have a lot. The more we're used to being in charge, the harder it is to let someone else take the lead. The more we're used to having everything we want whenever we want it, the harder it is to deny ourselves. This is why we have lent a season of deliberate practice. This is a gift to us. And if we are used to never facing any sense of threat to ourselves, that huge privilege, the more ridiculous it seems to ever willingly put ourselves or our loved ones in harm's way. But my dear ones, that is exactly what Jesus did. We will talk more about this in a few weeks, but Jesus gave up all of his comfort and safety and power and allowed his very body to be the place where all of the evil in the world was revealed. And he chose that. Not because he was a masochist, but because he trusted that his suffering, his act of sacrificial love, could change things. He accepted the consequences of his actions, trusting That his suffering would be honored, transformed, and redeemed, and so can ours. I wanna close with just one more quote from Dr. King from his sermon on loving your enemies in the book Strength to Love. Again, if you haven't bought that yet, totally recommend it. It's a great book for Lent. This quote brings together the principles from the past three weeks. One, the goal of nonviolence is reconciliation two, evildoers are also victims, and three, suffering willingly accepted can transform the world. Here's what he says. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead And we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Amen. As always, I want to offer you some time for reflection. We continue to pick up some real heavy things in this season. So I offer you a few moments perhaps to block out the distractions that are around you. You may do that by closing your eyes. You may do that by letting your gaze softly rest on this image of Jesus in Gethsemane when he chooses the suffering. Would you take a couple of deep breaths? And just begin to notice what's rising up for you this morning. Perhaps you're noticing your own privilege. Remembering times when your safety has been threatened and feeling very resistant to ever putting yourself in that situation willingly. That's understandable. I invite you to try to take just a couple of moments to perhaps listen for where the Holy Spirit of God is calling you To release some of your comfort and safety and power, what can you do? who calls us into the difficult places of life for the sake of the common good, we will follow you. Give us courage and strength and creativity and we will follow you.